Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter ship show Trade war optimism continues to rule the day on Wall Street. Big gains across the board. The Dow up 320 points, 24,776, I believe. The transports did even better on a percentage basis, up 213 points. That's just over 2%. NASDAQ composite up almost 68 points. Uh, Big day up. Uh, all of this again, enthusiasm over the trade war that now that it's broken out, there's nothing to worry about because the U.S. is so well positioned to uh, withstand the war relative to our trading partners who apparently are a bunch of sitting ducks. I mean, one of the things I, I keep hearing too is that, well, it's a good thing that we're doing this now, right? We're getting this out of the way now, this badly needed trade war because, you know, we really have to uh, get tough with our trading partners to do something about the trade deficits. But now's the time, right? Because now we have a really strong economy. And so now's the time to do it. Like we couldn't have done it when Obama was president because the economy was just not strong enough. But now that we've got this great economy, now we can get our house in order because, you know, we can withstand it, which of course is utter nonsense. Because we don't have a great economy. We have the same economy we had under Obama. I mean, GDP growth last year was, what, 2.3%? There's nothing special about that. The first quarter was 2.0. Nothing to write home about. Yes, everybody is excited about this quarter, or Q2, the quarter that just ended. Maybe it's going to come out in the threes, 
right? There was some hope that it might be in the fours, but I think more realistically, maybe in the threes, but maybe not, maybe in the twos, we'll see. But it's one quarter. One quarter does not a year make. We had plenty of quarters when Obama was president that we had growth of three or four, even 5% for a quarter, but it didn't translate into 3% for the entire year. And I don't think we're going to have 3% GDP growth for this year. So the economy is no stronger than it was under Obama. Therefore, it's no better positioned for the trade war. I mean, if you want to talk about the labor market, I mean, last year, 2017, was the weakest year for job growth since 2011. So we don't know what 2018 is going to bring. I mean, so far, it's off to an okay start. I mean, nothing great. Um, Yes, the unemployment rate has continued to trend down as it did for almost the entirety of the Obama terms, but that's all for the wrong reasons. I already went over that on the last podcast. That is because the trend of people leaving the labor force and being discouraged because they haven't found the job in a year and having more and more people drop off of the official or even unofficial unemployment numbers. Uh, So the lower unemployment rate doesn't indicate an improvement. And of course, you know, the people who are not employed don't have any skills. And so they're not likely to become employed. I mean, at least they don't have enough skills that makes them as valuable as the current minimum wage, which is still pretty low on the on, on the, the totem pole of jobs. But again, that is why, and I went over this in the previous podcast, that's why you have so many unfilled jobs. It's not because the economy is so strong. It's because the labor force is that weak. So we are not in a unique position of strength to be able to uh, you know, take on the trade war. But also, as I said before, we have the most to lose. We are very vulnerable. You know, I keep hearing people say, well, you know, trade is such a small part of the economy. 15% of the economy, I think, is imports. That's not that small. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not 85% is not imports, but you take away 15% of your economy, that's a massive recession. But, you know, 12% of the economy, I think, is exports. So, you know, the difference, obviously, is the deficit. But you add those two things together, that's still a lot of economic activity. You can't just dismiss that. Now, obviously, all of that's not going to go away, right, just because we have tariffs. But it's going to be diminished somewhat. But again, the economic harm is not confined to the imports themselves. You have to look at the whole economy that is built around the import. I mean, let's say a a, a store that sells imported goods to consumers, right? That store has a bunch of imported products that are on the shelves. And why are there imported products on those shelves? Because they're cheaper, or in many cases, they're not only cheaper than American products, the American products don't exist that if you want to have certain products on the shelves, it's either you have imported products on those shelves or the shelves are empty, right? Now, so if those products weren't there and the shelves were empty or the shelves were stocked with goods that were so expensive, most people couldn't afford to buy them, how is that going to impact GDP? Well, it's not just that we're going to import less. That store may not be in business. Or if it is in business, it might downsize. It might become smaller. It might have. It might pay less rent to the landlord because it has less space. It may hire fewer workers, you know, because it's going to have lower sales. 
So all that's going to pyramid throughout the entire economy. So you can't get, you know, have a false sense of security into thinking that such a small part of the economy is imports. You have to look at how the rest of the economy depends on those imports. And without those imports, those jobs don't exist. The rents won't be there. A lot of people are going to be affected by the absence of those imports or if the price goes up to the point that it impacts sales, right? People cannot afford to buy as much stuff if the price goes down. And in a way, you know, somebody at the Trump administration understands this. You know, I was reading an article today and the angle was that, you know, Trump is trying to help out his daughter, Ivanka, who has a a clothing line because so far exempted from the tariffs is apparel, you know, clothing, shoes, and a lot of that is made in China. Now, why doesn't Trump want to impose a 25% tariff there? I mean, even Trump, right? Trump, Trump neckties, those things are made in China. In fact, I think those Make America Great Again hats, those things were made in China too, I think, until somebody uh, protested that. But, you know, Trump can complain all he wants about, you know, buying Chinese products. But, you know, his apparel companies, his daughter's apparel companies, obviously, they're, they're doing the same thing. But I don't think it's just because he's trying to help out his daughter. I think they recognize that, wait a minute, if we put 25% tariffs on apparel and shoes, that would be immediately felt right away, immediately and noticeably by so many voters because everybody buys clothing. I mean, especially if you have kids, right? And they're constantly growing, right? All the kids' clothes, all their shoes, they're, almost all that stuff is made in China. So imagine if all of a sudden all that stuff was 25% more expensive, right? That, that would immediately evoke an outrage. I mean, first of all, you know, apparel is a decent chunk of the CPI, And one of the reasons that that part of the CPI has been so tame is because of all the imports coming in from China. So you'd see a big jump in that part of the CPI. But, I mean, think about uh, the gender gap. We already have a bit of a gender gap. I mean, think about all the shoes that are made in China. Because the article I looked at specifically talked about the shoe line that Ivanka has and that she imports her shoes uh, from China. And, you know, China isn't the only place that we import shoes from. We import shoes from other places as well, but we don't make them here. I mean, there may be a few shoes that we make here, but I doubt I own any, and most people probably don't own any. Um, But imagine what would happen with women if all of a sudden all their shoes were 25% more expensive. I mean, that would really widen the gender gap. I mean, because women buy a lot of shoes. I mean, if you're a guy and you don't know this, uh, they do. I mean, I'm married and, and women buy a lot of shoes. I mean, guys, you know, we have one pair of brown shoes, one pair of black shoes, and we pretty much set. That's really all you need because, uh, you know, you can, you know, there's some outfits where you can wear a black shoe and some where you need a, a brown shoe and then, and you know, you're fine. But women, I mean, they have so many different colors. They got to get different shoe colors and different styles, not just different colors, different styles for every outfit. And, and then, you know, then they need to pair them with a handbag. So you got all these handbags, you know, and a lot of these handbags are made in China too. At least, you know, if you're not buying these really high-end handbags that are made in Europe, I mean, the average uh, Trump voter uh, woman is buying a handbag probably made in China, but they need a bunch of them. They need different colors. They need different handbags for the day and different ones to, to go out at night, right? It's a whole huge wardrobe deal 
that's going on. And if all of a sudden everything went up by 25%, that would be a big problem. There'd be some kind of backlash. So I think Trump is trying to, you know, at least lay off that for now. I mean, whether or not that's something that they're going to escalate to down the line. But the fact that they've already exempted it shows that they, they understand that there's a problem. Now, you know, I see people, you know, commenting on my sites that, you know, we need tariffs. We have to protect our industries. You know, we had tariffs in the past. Look, we shouldn't need tariffs. When we had tariffs, it was when we were a young country just getting started. And okay, yeah, you had these developed uh, uh, businesses in Europe and America was a brand new country. And so it made sense that, hey, we needed some revenue for the government. We didn't need much because the government didn't do much. Uh, And so tariffs were an efficient way to both raise a small amount of money and to protect uh, infant companies in the U.S., let them get off their feet, let them start to grow. I mean, the fact that we need them now at this stage in our development just really shows you how far back we've gone. But I would agree that in the scheme of things, if we were to go back to constitutional government where the government only did those things that are authorized in the Constitution, in which case we eliminated the vast majority of government and then we eliminated all of the unconstitutional taxes like the income tax, Yet we had to find a way for the government to raise money to fund the small parts of government we didn't eliminate, right? Whatever part of the national defense we we kept, right, to run, you know, the basics of government. Yes, I would be in favor of funding that with tariffs. That would be that would kill two birds in one stone, potentially across the board tariffs uh, for uh, raising revenue uh, to, to give our industries a chance Uh, to come back from the dead because they're basically dead. But to say that adding tariffs now on top of the income tax that we already have is not going to be effective and we are not getting to the root cause of the problem. The trade deficits are not the problem. They are the consequence of the problem, right? So just claiming that we have deficits because our politicians were idiots and they negotiated bad deals because people say, Peter, don't you think we should do something about these trade deficits? Yes, but these tariffs are not going to do anything about it unless we get to the root cause of the problem. See, when America had tariffs, when we were just starting out as a nation, we had minimal government apart from those tariffs. We had very few regulations and very low taxes. And so our companies were able to succeed because of that low government environment that enabled them to succeed. But if you just try to have tariffs, but you don't do anything about changing uh, the character of the country, if you don't do anything about addressing the lack of productivity, why is it that we have to import all these products? Why don't we just make them ourselves? Well, we don't have the savings. We don't have the capital investment. Why don't we do that? Well, because the Fed has been keeping interest rates artificially low. The tax code encourages uh, debt. Uh, we have lots of people uh, going into debt. They're not saving. They're just you know, buying things on their credit cards because of subsidies that the banks get. And the banks get subsidies to make student loans. They get subsidies uh, to make home mortgages. Uh, so people are, 
are just being subsidized to go into debt. So the government is encouraging all the wrong things. They are punishing all the right things. If you have interest that you earn, you pay taxes on it. Uh, you know, you go out and get a job, you pay taxes on what you earn, but if you don't work, then they'll give you a welfare or various other government programs. So we have all the wrong incentives. And as I mentioned in my last podcast, our labor force is all screwed up. Our, our people lack the necessary skills. Uh, to manufacture stuff ourselves. I mean, we have all of our kids uh, just have fancy degrees, but they don't know how to operate any machines. They don't have any skills. They don't understand. They don't have the, the craftsmanship that's necessary to do this stuff. And they'd rather not. I mean, they'd rather just, you know, collect an unemployment check or uh, disability or welfare check than actually do uh, some tedious work uh, working on an assembly line. I mean, it's not work that you want to do if the government gives you an alternative. So unless we are going to address the lack of competitiveness in the U.S. economy by deregulation and shrinking government so we can lower taxes, unless we are going to completely uh, upend the educational bureaucracy so that we don't keep kids in school, uh, uh, K through 12, uh, we let kids finish after elementary school or junior high school if they don't have uh, the aptitude uh, for academics, let people go into trade schools, let people go and work uh, and get rid of all the occupational licensing and the minimum wage and all the whatever laws are preventing younger people from acquiring skills on the job or getting into a trade school. Uh, you know, we're wasting all this money. And if we don't, you know, stop forcing everybody into college and making every manufacturing all these liberal arts degrees, unless we get to the change, change all that. The trade, the, the, the protectionist tariffs aren't going to do anything because there's nothing to protect, right? That the industries are not going to thrive just because you have tariffs. So it's, it's just like, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a skin cancer and thinking that you solved the problem because you've kind of obscured uh, the, the blemish from sight. Whatever is causing that skin cancer, if you don't treat that, then, you know, you're, you know, you're still going to, you're going to die of that skin cancer. What we need to do is we need to treat the cancer that is causing the trade deficits, not just try to make the trade deficits vanish uh, by, by trying to impose tariffs. You know, another, uh, I guess, misguided tweet that came out today from the president had to do with drugs. Let me read this tweet that the president got. It got 66,000 likes. Right, 18,000 um, retweets and 13,000 replies, one of which was mine. So I'm in that 13,000. But this is what Donald Trump tweeted out earlier today. Pfizer and others should be ashamed that they have raised drug prices for no reason. Like they're just doing it for no reason. <laughs> they are merely taking advantage of the poor and others unable to defend themselves while at the same time giving bargain basement prices to other countries in Europe and elsewhere. We will respond. So here is the president threatening businesses for raising prices, for making a profit. I mean, this is something that if Obama was calling out big business like this, right, the Republicans would be all over him. Or if Hillary Clinton was saying this, you don't understand capitalism. This is an assault on capitalism. This is an assault on private enterprise, but Trump says it and it's no big deal. I mean, just like I, I, in fact, I meant to mention this when it comes to trade, but could you imagine 
if Hillary Clinton had launched these tariffs the same way that Donald Trump did? Can you imagine that? The backlash by the Republicans? This is terrible. The president doesn't understand capitalism, doesn't understand free trade. This is going to backfire. This is going to make us uh, lower our standard of living. This is going to raise prices, right? They would. They, the Republicans would be all over Hillary Clinton if she was doing this. They would have been all over uh, Barack Obama if he did this because Republicans have generally been known to be more in favor of free trade. It's the Democrats who wanted some protectionism because they wanted to protect workers. They thought, well, free trade is lowering wages. It's hurting the blue-collar worker. So you generally associate the Democrats with the protectionism, and the Republicans wanted to be free traders. Now, of course, since Trump is advocating protectionism, the Republicans don't want to attack him because they're blindly loyal to the party. So basically, you know, whatever Trump wants to do, you know, they're all going to line up and, and, and back him. So now he's bashing Pfizer and other private companies for gouging the consumer, just raising prices for no reason. Um, this is all misplaced. Look, I agree that drug prices are too high, right? They should be a lot lower. But it's not because Pfizer is just raising prices for no reason. Believe me, they have plenty of reasons for raising their prices. And one of the reasons is the FDA, which is something that President Trump is in a position to do something about. He's the president. That's a federal agency. Do something about the FDA. You know, I know that Trump did do something. They passed some kind of uh, bill which enables people who are terminal, right? If you're, you know, you're going to die, uh, you can try out some experimental medicine. You have the right to choose uh, an experimental medicine if you're terminal, right? Because before Trump signed this, uh, if you were terminal, the government said, look, you can't use that medicine because we don't know if it's safe. Well, who cares if it's safe? I'm going to die anyway, right? That never made any sense to deny a terminal patient medicine that might save his life, but it might not. So let's wait till we get all the results. Who cares? I'm, I'm going I'm to be dead before they get the results. So let me take a shot, right? My doctor says he thinks it's promising. Why can't I try it? So I applaud the president for that move. But why not go further? Why not get rid of all that red tape? You know, it takes about 10 years and $2.6 billion. I just read this off a website. That is the average cost for a drug company to develop a drug and get it to market. 10 years and $2.6 billion. That is ridiculous. Now, the drug companies have to recoup those costs when they finally get a drug to market. But it's not just those costs because those are the drugs that make it. There's a lot of times where they start on a drug and they spend a lot of money on it and it doesn't make it, right? It fails. Probably most of the drugs that drug companies invest money in, somewhere along that 10-year process, they fail some of these studies and they, they get nothing. So the drugs that get approved, not only does the drug company have to recoup the cost of getting that drug approved, but in there, it's got to get the money for all the drugs that, that went nowhere, that they invested money and they got nothing. So what Trump could do if he really cared about high drug prices is let's get into that FDA and let's make it easier 
for drugs to get approved. In fact, one of the things I think that would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't cost, wouldn't take any lives, it would dramatically reduce the cost of drugs, is don't require that drug companies prove that the drugs work. Just let them prove that they're safe. See, the government requires you to do two things. One, in order to get a drug approved, you got to prove that it doesn't do any harm. And I can get that, right? You don't want to take a drug that's going to kill you or have, you know, really, really bad side effects, right? So they want you to prove that. But then they also want you to prove that it works. And that's a lot harder. That takes a lot more money. Efficacy is harder to prove than the fact that it doesn't do any harm. But you know what? If it doesn't do any harm, who cares whether the government agrees that it works or not? Let the free market decide if it works. Let doctors decide if it works. Let patients decide if it works. So if they just made that simple change and said, just prove your drugs don't hurt people and we'll let the market decide if they work, right? Now, you can make an argument for both. Let the market decide if they hurt people. Let the doctors decide. But let's not even go that far. Let's not try to go all the way free market because it's going to be hard to get people to agree to that. Let's just say, look, if you can prove your drug doesn't hurt anybody and doesn't have any harmful side effects, then go ahead and sell it. If it works, okay. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, you know, no harm, no foul. Let people try it. The cost of drugs would plummet if they did that. That is an, an easy win. But also, you know, there's a lot of other things that cause the drug prices to go up. I think there are a lot of regulations on uh, insurance companies that really make it hard for them to negotiate price on a drug-by-drug -drug basis. I think they're, they're required to buy a certain amount of drugs. Uh, that kind of hurts, hurts that. I know the U.S. government, Medicare, Medicaid, they're a big buyer. They're not allowed to negotiate price uh, with uh, pharmaceutical companies. And of course, the entire system that we have, the third-party payer system, where a lot of the drugs are probably prescribed that are probably not even needed, and people buy them anyway because you know their 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 copay is low. Because you have all the third-party payer uh, where the insurance company covers things. And if we had more people buying their drugs themselves because the tax code didn't uh, result in people buying insurance uh, because it was, you know, with their pre-tax income as opposed to just uh, buying the drugs themselves, we'd have more market forces uh, keeping uh, drug prices down. But again, the biggest problem is how expensive it is to get the drugs to market. You know, in some cases, it's so expensive that we don't get them. In fact, I mentioned this on a podcast a long time ago. And somebody from Israel, I remember, sent me some Israeli suntan lotion as a gift. And I very appreciated that. And I've, you know, I've been getting more. And pretty much all the sun, sunscreen that I use is imported, right? Not just made in another country. I have to buy it in another country and have it shipped in. Why can't I buy this sunscreen in America? And, and, and for the reason that I'm going for this sunscreen, and I'm not you know, a dermatologist or I forget all the medical explanations, but apparently all these foreign sunscreens have certain ingredients in them that really prevents skin cancer. It takes out, keeps out all these ultraviolet rays and it's great sunscreen. I mean, you, you rub it on and it feels nothing like the stuff I buy here. I mean, the way it goes on and it stays on and it works great, right? And if you've ever bought any of this sunscreen, you know, made in other countries, make, you know, make it in Israel or make it in Australia, right? 
you buy that you'll never go back to using you know the copper tone or whatever it is that that we get in the U.S. because it's so much better for you. And and ironically, America has the highest incidence of skin cancer of any country in the world. Right? Yet we're the only country that doesn't use the sunscreens that will prevent skin cancer. And why is that? Well, because in order for the sunscreen to be sold in this market, since it has this drug in it, it needs to be approved by the FDA. And it costs so much to approve it that nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to take the expense. I mean, no U.S. company is going to spend all that money just so they can make a sunscreen. I mean, I guess they might get a patent if they're the only one that did it for a certain number of years, but they still would have to compete internationally with all the, the foreign manufacturers uh, that, that have gotten it approved. So it, it's not worth it. I mean, if there's a drug that they could really charge a lot of money for, because if some, if some uh, sunscreen company invested the amount of money necessary to get this stuff approved, a bottle of sunscreen would be so expensive that nobody would buy it, right? I mean, it wouldn't be covered by your insurance policy, right? So they couldn't sell it. So because of that, no American company is developing it, but also none of these foreign companies want to pay the money either. So if you're a foreign manufacturer and you're selling sunscreen in every country of the world except America, and it's going to cost you a fortune to open up the American market, but then again, if you do it and you get into the American market, you know, somebody else could get into that market. Because once it's approved, right, if even if you're a foreign competitor, if you get in, I think once if it gets approved, it's not just that ingredient isn't just improved for you. It's approved for all the other companies that are that are making it. So it's like, you know, you get the free rider problem because if they're already out there. Lots of companies have it. So nobody wants to be the sucker to, to lay down the money up front to get it approved. You'd rather just you know, ride on the coattails of whoever is dumb enough to spend the money. So nobody is dumb enough to spend the money because everybody wants to wait for somebody else to do it. And so nobody does. So meanwhile, Americans can't get this sunscreen unless they do what I do, unless they find out about it and they have it shipped in from another country. And we continue to have the highest incidence of skin cancer in the world. So now we have to spend money treating skin cancer, which is a lot more expensive than just having some sunscreen that prevents it. But also one more thing I want to mention about this, because Trump did point something out, which is true. But again, it's half the story. He's pointing out that foreigners, foreign countries are able to buy U.S. drugs at a fraction of what Americans pay. And that's true. And he's like, oh, we're going to stop that. We're going to, you know, foreign countries are taking advantage of us. I mean, they're not. I mean, they are getting a benefit of our system, but the mechanics of it are very complicated and the president doesn't really lay that out. But this is what happens. So the U.S. companies, when they get a drug, finally get a drug approved in the U.S. market, they have billions of dollars of capital already invested that they need to recoup, right? And of course, you know, I had somebody put a post on my Facebook page. Oh, this is, oh, these drug companies are greedy, Right. Well, I mean, if you mean, do they want a profit on their investment? Yes. Right. If a drug company is going to invest money to try to solve a problem, to try to create a medicine that is going to make our lives better, they expect to get paid for it. 
the investors who are putting money up to fund the research and development to make our lives better are doing it for a profit. Just like everybody else is doing something for a profit. And so if you want to say the drug companies shouldn't be able to make a profit, well, then they're not going to invest any money and we're not going to have any drugs, right? So in order to maintain the industry, you need to maintain the profit incentive. And in order to maintain a profit, they're going to have to raise their prices when it costs so much to produce the drugs in the first place. But so they, they launch a new drug and now they have a certain number of years to try to recoup their investment, right? And so they're, they're going to recoup it in the American market. Now, here's what happens. So now they want to try to sell some of their drugs internationally. And here, it's a marginal sale. Because once you're trying to recoup your costs in the U.S., the marginal cost of selling your drugs to the Canadian market or the U.K. market is minimal. The actual cost of producing the extra drug is small. So here is the dynamic. So a big company like Pfizer negotiates with the, the national health care of um, Great Britain. And they say, okay, yeah, we'd like to buy this drug and here's how many pills we want and here's how much we can afford to pay. And if you can't meet our budget, well, then we're not going to buy the drug. It's just, we'll just go without it, right? And, and the UK citizens will have to use something else, right? They just have a certain budget. And Pfizer can decide, you know, well, no, that, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate a certain price and, 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 and that's it. And the price is generally going to be much lower than the price they're charging in the U.S., but it's still a profit because it's, if, if they can't get to a point where they can fit with the, the budget in the U.K., well, then they're, not, they're just not going to make a sale at all. And in fact, these international sales are part, they reduce our trade deficit, number one, because we're selling drugs abroad, but they also help subsidize the cost for Americans because if Pfizer couldn't sell some of these drugs at a reduced cost, to the UK market or the Canadian market or the Australian market or all over, then they would have to charge even more in the US market because they wouldn't be able to have those added revenue streams to help offset the big cost. Now, could Trump is trying to say, well, why don't we charge those foreign countries more and the US companies less? Well, maybe the foreign countries won't pay more. And so then there's no sales abroad. And then what do you do? Then the companies will never be able to recoup the cost of developing the drugs. So the bottom line is there's no there's nothing that can be done. We have the system that we have. It needs to be reformed. And of course, if the UK wants to deny a drug to the national health because it's too expensive, they have a right to do that because they got socialized medicine over there. And if the government doesn't say you can get this drug, you can't get it, you know, unless you want to buy it illegally or go out of country and buy it. But in America, where we have private insurance in a way, you know, if a drug is on the market and it works, you have a right to use it and the insurance company is going to pay for it. So, you know, we've got these dynamics that are what they are and drug prices are running out of control. There is a solution, but the, what's not going to work is just vilifying the drug companies and just telling them to lower their prices. Just like telling OPEC to lower its prices is not going to work. Just like slapping tariffs is not going to work. Just by saying, oh, the Chinese are bad. The Germans are bad. They're not playing fair. They're out negotiating us. We just need, no, none of this is going to work. We need substance, not form, right? This is the big problem. You know, I mentioned this again before about the politics of this, but people do not understand what happened in the 2016 election, right? You've got everybody out there saying that the, the country moved to the right, 
right? That this shows that we rejected the liberals and the Republican Party, you know, the country has moved more towards uh, less government or, you know, the free market and away from the left. That hasn't happened at all. If that is your takeaway from the politics of 2016, you are completely wrong and you are in for a rude awakening. The public didn't vote for less government. They voted for Trump. They voted for a savior. That's what Trump promised to be. Trump felt their pain. Trump called out the establishment for the phony numbers, the fake numbers. The unemployment numbers are a lie. The government is lying to you. The media is lying to you. The economy is a disaster. The recovery is not real. That's what Trump said as a candidate. And he was right. And it resonated with people. Vote for me. I will clean house. I will drain the swamp. I will kick out these career politicians. I am a businessman and I'm going to kick some ass. Just like I did on uh, Main Street, I'm going to go kick ass up and down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. I am a game changer. I'm going to be a cog in the machine. I'm there to represent the people. I'm going to do what's right for the country. I'm, I'm going to put country over politics. People voted for that. Right? Trump didn't promise to cut any government spending. He promised not to cut anything. Right? I'm just going to make things better. I'm going to renegotiate the trade deals. I'm going to build a wall because the, the immigrants are stealing your jobs. Right? I'm going to stop all that from happening. Even though that wasn't true, the immigrants weren't stealing our jobs. It sounds good for people who don't have a good job and they want to they want to blame it on the immigrants. They're looking for a scapegoat. And Donald Trump says, yes, that's why you don't have jobs. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to build a wall. So he appealed to that, right? But the problem is it didn't work. It's not going to work. Yes, there's still some optimism out there, right? The only thing that's improved about the economy is the optimism. Well, it's not like to feel the dreams, right? You know, if we, if we wish for it, it's going to happen. Even though we have all this confidence among consumers, among small businessmen, among purchasing managers, everybody's expecting the economy to get better, but it hasn't gotten better. And it's not going to get better because we haven't enacted the policies to make it better. Meanwhile, we had a bubble. Trump inherited a bubble from Obama and it's a bigger bubble now and it's still going to blow up. And when it does, right, when the savior doesn't deliver on his promise, then what? Because remember, the voters were grasping for straws when they picked Trump because he was the straw that was different. He stood out, right? It wasn't because he wanted less government. It was because he was different and he talked about a change, right? Making America great again. Well, if he's going to campaign that America is already great, well, then who's going to unseat him? It's going to be the next agent of change, the next guy that says, I'm going to do it differently. And who's that? That's going to be the socialist. That's going to be the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party when Trump is revealed to have been a false prophet, when he doesn't deliver on his promises, when things get worse for the average guy. I mean, the tax cuts, oh, he told Trump told everybody the tax cuts were going to result in big pay increases for the workers. That's not happened. This year is going to be by far a record, all-time record year for corporate buybacks. Biggest ever. And of course, worst time for corporations to be buying back stock when you have record high valuations. But that's where all that tax cut money went. It went into record buybacks. Now, some of it 
is going into the underfunded pensions. So some of the pensions are getting short up a little bit more. But you know what they're doing with that? They're buying bonds, too. That's one of the reasons I think that the bonds, because the company is still up until I think sometime later this year, they can still write off their pension contributions at the old tax rate. So there's been an acceleration of, of funding of pensions. And I think that's put a bid in the bond market for a while. Uh, so we, we got that going. But when the voters go to the polls and they realize that they don't have a big pay hike, but what did go up is their gas bill, right? their utility bill, their medical bill. And who knows you know, what's going to happen as a result of the tariffs and the trade war. And again, this is a perfect excuse for the Federal Reserve. I mean, this is like a gift from heaven because now when the Federal Reserve has to cut interest rates, when the Federal Reserve has to do QE4, they can just blame it all on the tariffs, on the trade war. They can say everything was great. You know, we were going to normalize interest rates. We were going to shrink our balance sheet. But Trump went and started a trade war, and it unexpectedly sent us into recession. And so now we've got to uh, cut rates again and do QE4. They were going to do that anyway, whether or not we had the trade war, whether or not we had any of these tariffs. But now this gives them a perfect excuse to blame something on which they had no control. See, they, they can save face by pretending everything was great and they, they would have been able to raise rates. They would have been able to shrink their balance sheet, but for these tariffs, which put us into an unexpected recession. And so now they have to do this again. So now they never actually have to admit that their policy was a failure because they can say that the trade war was the failure. And now they're doing again what worked before, but it never worked. And it would have collapsed even without the trade war. But Trump has simply teed this up and now they can hit it out of the park. And the same thing for the Democrats is like, hey, everything was great. Trump inherited this great economy from Obama and he screwed it up with by launching a trade war and giving tax cuts to the rich, you know, because they didn't trickle down to higher wages. We still had a recession. Unemployment went up. I mean, all this stuff, you know, and then, of course, the stock market's going to go down, you know, because, you know, the buybacks are going to stop and the market's going to go down. They're going to lose control of long rates. So this scenario, this political disaster uh, is out there in the making. And, and people, investors don't get it. People don't get it. They have totally misread what Americans voted for. They didn't vote for less government. They didn't vote for the Republicans. They voted for something different. They voted for hope. They voted for change. They voted for Trump the man because he called out all the bullshit. Now he's part of it. Now he's part of the establishment. He's part of those phony numbers, right? And so now somebody else is going to come up with some bigger bullshit on socialism and the public's going to buy into it, right? The people who are, you know, not even in the labor force, the people who are not even counted as unemployed because they've been discouraged for so long, they're going to vote for anybody who's promising them something for nothing, right? That's what they're going to do. And a lot of the people who, you know, voted for Trump, who were, you know, maybe Reagan Democrats who crossed over, they're going to cross back. They're not going to care that the Democrats are socialist. It's not going to matter because whatever Republicans tried didn't work, right? So now let's just try something else. It's going to be, hey, what do you got to lose? Things are so bad. I mean, Trump actually, that was, I think, what he had, he said even to minorities. Hey, look, you've done so bad, badly under the Democrats, just vote Republican. What do you got to lose, right? I mean, he was right, but 
you know, the, the socialists can make the same argument. Just putting in those, hey, we've never actually tried pure socialism. You know, we've tried socialism light, so let's just go all in, right? What do you got to lose? And as far as most people are concerned, nothing. Because it's not what they've got to lose. They're going to take it for somebody else. They're getting stuff for free. Now, also, you've got a lot of older people who are working. I read this article that the number of 85-year-olds that are still working is an all-time record high, right? And, you know, this is part of the, the, the flaw in the government telling us that the labor force participation rate is falling because the baby boom is retiring. If you've got a record number of 85-year-old people still working, they ain't retiring. Now, I know people could say, well, we have a lot more people that are living older now, living longer, so it would make sense that we would have more people who are 85 and still working. I don't buy that. I mean, if you want to talk about more people who are working at 70 or 75, you know, they delayed retirement for a little bit. But 85, I mean, once you hit 85, I mean, you can't be saving for your old age. I mean, you're there. I mean, if you're not going to retire at 85, I mean, you're pretty much working every day till you drop dead because when you're 85 and you go to, to work every day, I mean, you may die on the job. I mean, I'm not sure what the life expectancy is when you're already 85, but it's not that long, especially if you're still working. I mean, that probably, that might, you know, depending on the type of work that you do. Uh, so if somebody is 85 years old and they're working, it's not by choice. It's by necessity, right? Somebody who's 85 is working because they have to, because if they don't work, they don't eat. They can't pay the rent. You know, there is a reason. I mean, even if you like what you're doing, I mean, 85, and I'm sure most of these people who are working at, at 85, they're not doing the type of professions that you would think, okay, yes, they really enjoy their work. They're probably doing things that they would much rather not do. They would rather be with their grandkids or their great-grandkids. They would rather be relaxing, uh, playing shuffleboard or, you know, whatever you do when you're, when you're 85 years old. They don't want to be punching a clock. They don't want to be greeting people at Walmart or working as crossing guards, uh, waking up early to help the elementary school kids uh, cross the street. They're not doing that uh, because they, they're enjoying uh, the work uh, and because they're young, they're, they're still vibrant. They're doing that because they're broke, right? Because they didn't save and they put their faith in a government Ponzi scheme that wasn't able to deliver. And they don't have any kids who can afford to support them because their kids are broke. Either they don't have jobs or whatever they earn is not enough because they pay it all in taxes. And the whole economy has imploded thanks to the government. And now you have people who are working uh, until, until they die. I mean, the government has re destroyed retirement. A lot of people don't realize that yet. There are a lot of people today who still think they're going to retire. That's not going to happen. Right? Retirement's going to go the way of the single family uh, household. You know, at one time it was the norm uh, for there to be one paycheck. If there was a married couple, the woman didn't have to work. The husband had it covered. He could support his wife and, you know, four or five kids. No problem. Now that is the, the minority. The vast majority of families consist of two people, husband and wife, or maybe now a husband and husband. Uh, wife and wife, but regardless, they both work. There's nobody staying at home not working unless you're talking about very, very wealthy families, by and large. Um, the, the, the norm for America is that both parents work, and maybe there's only one kid or two kids. That, that'd be a big family, two kids. Uh, but same thing's going to happen with retirement. The norm is not going to be retiring and, and stopping working. That's going to be the exception. 
The rule is going to be you work every day until you drop dead. And that is a sign of a collapsing standard of living. And this is what the government did. Because before we had Social Security, right, retirement was a lot more attainable for people. But once the government socialized retirement savings, they were able to squander all the money by turning retirement into a gigantic intergenerational Ponzi scheme. And we've now come to the point where we have, you know, run out of, of, of new people to come into the scheme. And so the whole thing is falling apart. And you can already see that. But imagine what is going to happen over the next five or 10 years or 15 years when the government has a choice of either reneging outright on its commitments to make payments or having to print massive amounts of money so that massive inflation wipes out the value whatever payments are actually made. <laughs>